Welcome to our podcast, Oncology Morning Commute, PDL one expression, who are the best candidates for immunotherapeutic agents? Morning Commute is developed in collaboration with At Point of Care and Projects and Knowledge and is part of a continuing medical education series. This independent CME-CE activity is supported by an educational grant from Merck. In this podcast, Beth Sandy and Marianne Davies take a look at PDL one expression and immunotherapies. Who are the best candidates for these therapies? Information about the faculty and disclosures can be found by visiting morningcommutepodcast.com forward slash NSCLC5. You can use this link to receive your credit and evaluate this program. The URL can also be accessed in the episode notes. Beth Sandy is a nurse practitioner with the Abramson Cancer Center at the University of Pennsylvania, Philadelphia. Marion Davies is an associate professor of medicine and a nurse practitioner at Smilo Cancer Hospital in the Yale Comprehensive Cancer Center in New Haven, Connecticut. I am Candace Hoffman, managing editor of Morning Commute. Beth Sandy will begin our discussion. All right, Marianne, um, welcome back again. Uh, in our last podcast, we talked you know, a lot about molecular testing in non-small cell lung cancer. And one of those things was uh, looking at PDL1 expression level, which we get by immunohistochemistry. Um, you know, and so now we're going to focus really more on those patients who are biomarker negative, but what are their PDL1 levels and, and how do we select patients? Um, for immunotherapy. Um, let's start off by the basics. Is there anyone, Marianne, you would not give immunotherapy to, um, regardless of PDL1 status? Uh, yes, certainly. So you already mentioned that anybody who's got a driver mutation or genomic um, aberration, uh, we would not move to immune therapy as they should be receiving that targeted therapy. There are other candidates, perhaps uh, patients that have a rapidly growing uh, disease or extensive disease. Uh, we uh, would likely not select uh, monotherapy for uh, immune checkpoint inhibition because uh, we know the time to response for immune checkpoint uh, inhibition uh, is longer than cytotoxic agents. So the extent of disease and the, the, the rate at which a patient's disease is progressing uh, will help guide us in terms of our initial treatment. That's a really great point. So you're saying you would want to, you know, give immunotherapy with the chemo to get a faster response because single agent immunotherapy might take a little bit longer. Absolutely. And so that is part of our decision making. Um, you know, the, it may sometimes take even eight weeks, 12 weeks, sometimes even longer if you were to use monotherapy to see a response uh, to immune checkpoint inhibition. And so for patients that have really bulky, bulky disease, we may need to have something that uh, is either working in combination or certainly working a little bit faster. Um, there are other um, patients perhaps that are not candidates for immune checkpoint inhibition. And those are patients that have um, underlying, uh, let's say, um, autoimmune diseases, which still require active immunosuppression, um, or those that have immunosuppressive therapy for other uh, reasons, uh, such as organ transplant, stem cell transplant, et cetera. But those aside, if they do not have those other contraindications, uh, then if they have um, greater than 1% of PDL1 expression, typically uh, we will move to either a combination or monotherapy. And for those patients that have PDL1 expression of greater than 50%, uh, we have a higher um, 
uh, tendency to move right towards monotherapy uh, with immune checkpoint therapy. One thing I would interject and say is with the biomarkers, um, I would, in my practice, KRAS, um, often we would use immunotherapy and chemo up front since that drug is approved in the second line setting. And BRAF, you can make an argument as well. Um, it, you know, it's approved, the, the BRAF inhibition is approved um, either first or second line, but these patients often do well with chemo and immunotherapy too. So I think the ones that we typically will use frontline, EGFR, Alcross one MET and RET, definitely you can make an argument for, but the, the KRAS, we would still probably use immunotherapy and chemo up front and the BRAF possibly as well. And I would definitely agree with you. I'm not giving this to a heart transplant patient, you know, um, patients that require that immunosuppression, I would be very afraid. But I think your patients with, you know, fairly controlled rheumatoid arthritis, um, you know, we're able to, to probably give it and work with their endocrine or rheumatoid doctor to manage this. I would agree with that. Um, so back to the patient selection, like you were talking about, um, let's start with the 50% and higher. Um, typically, these are the patients that are likely to do better. Um, there are several drugs that are approved in this setting, really all of them. And the question of whether or not to use it as a single agent or chemotherapy, you kind of just touched on. Most of the time in my practice, we will go with a single agent unless, like you said, you need that faster response, like if they're short of breath or coughing up blood, maybe add chemotherapy to it. Do you have a preference on drug to use in those 50% or higher? Uh, we know that pembrolizumab, atezolizumab, simiplumab are all approved as single agent. You can use the combination of ipilimumab and nivolumab also. So there's so many drugs to choose from here. What are your thoughts in that 50% or higher? patient population? So that that can be, you know, a challenging question. Um, typically, um, at our facility, we tend uh, to, to go with pembrolizumab um, in those patients that are greater than 50%. Um, part of that has to do with our comfort level, and it was one of the first ones that was approved for monotherapy. But as you said, we do have an opportunity to use um, each of the agents in monotherapy. So pembrolizumab, atezolizumab, um, and semiflumab. Um, so it, again, it's, it's oftentimes just a, um, a preference of provider in terms of what is used. Do you um, see a better overall survival difference between those three single agent drugs and in, in studies? Yeah. You know, from the data that, you know, when I look at the, you know, keynote study, um, particularly keynote um, 042, and then also from the um, Empower uh, 110, um, fairly similar overall survival and progression-free survival uh, for, for both of those, uh, those agents. The overall survival from uh, Sinephalmab uh, had not been reached at the last um, chance that I had um, to review the data. Um, so that would be our, my, our first um, choice. Um, for those that really are in the uh, 1 to 49%, um, those patients typically we would do combination therapy. Um, so um, a, a choice would be either um, pembrolizumab um, with uh, chemotherapy. And the, uh, the specific regimen is actually going to differ based on whether or not somebody has non-squamous, non-small cell lung cancer versus squamous. Uh, non-small cell lung cancer. And the other choice we have for combination in that, in that population would be um, the four-drug combination based on the uh, Empower 150, which is the atezolizumab, 
um, bevacizumab um, and chemotherapy in the non-squamous. So that's all four drugs together, you're saying? That's correct. In my experience, it's actually been uh, fairly well tolerated for patients. Um, the, the addition of the bevacizumab, uh, which is the, you know, the monoclonal antibody anti-angiogenic agent, does not really add a significant um, amount of toxicity for those patients. But again, that is a defined population. It's uh, not um, uh, to be used in patients that have squamous um, because we know the bevacizumab is contraindicated in, in that subset of, of patients. Yeah, and it's funny, I think this PDL one level one to 49%. So, and just to remind our listeners, it's about a third of each. So about a third of patients are going to be negative for PDL one with non-small cell lung cancer. About a third are going to fall into that one to 49% of these minimal expressors. And then a third will be in that 50% or higher. So I think in that middle category there, you know, these drugs, pembrolizumab is approved as a single agent for 1% or higher. However, a lot of us in the in the lung cancer community don't feel that that's really strong enough data as a single agent. I think where it comes in handy for me, if I have like a patient who's elderly, who I don't particularly think I want to give them platinum-based chemotherapy, I can still give them single agent, even if they have a low level, you know, 20%, 10% expression, um, and it's still approved that way. But I agree, I'm most of the time trying to add platinum-based chemotherapy, even though it's approved as a single agent, because I don't think it has just enough oomph, you know, to get us that good response. Um, I'm interested to hear about your feelings with um, ipilimumab and nivolumab. If you're using that much in um, any of these settings, really, they have an indication alone as ipilimumab and nivolumab alone, but they also, you know, in the expressors, but then they also have an indication in the negative population. So let's move to that PDL1 negative population where we're always doing chemo. What about you? So in the patients that are negative, um, chemotherapy is really a pillar of treatment in most cases for our patients. Um, as you mentioned, there might be some patients that do have comorbid medical conditions um, that uh, might prohibit us from, from using uh, chemotherapy, whether it's uh, hepatotoxicity or, or hepatic um, underlying disease or kidney underlying disease. Um, but I will tell you that one of the other drivers in some cases is the patient themselves. I mean, shared decision-making is really essential in making uh, that treatment decision. Um, some patients come um, equipped with having researched a lot of the data, and they they uh, sometimes they will come and say, "I absolutely, under no circumstances, want to receive chemotherapy, but I might consider immune checkpoint therapy." And so that that sometimes influences our decision. Well. We might want to include a cytotoxic agents if a patient um, and family uh, does, uh, really is adamant. We do know we have an opportunity to use the uh, nivolumab ipilimumab combination um, with the caveat knowing that the immune-related toxicity profile is going to um, be higher with that, and we've got to you know, make sure that we're doing our due diligence and assessing for those potential toxicities with that combination. You know, I haven't felt that it was overwhelmingly higher, though. Um, you know, it, it, I feel like ipilimumab, nivolumab doesn't really scare me. I mean, maybe a little bit more colitis, um, and we'll get to that in our next podcast. Spoiler alert or, you know, teaser there, because we're going to have another podcast talking about toxicities. But I don't 
don't think it was overwhelmingly toxic um, because the doses that we use in lung cancer are not these high doses that were used in many of the melanoma trials. Um, is Would you feel the same way? Well, I would agree with you. I would agree with you that uh, the toxicity profile isn't as high. Um, and, it, you know, you brought up a good point um, for those listening that maybe are not using immune checkpoint therapies on a regular basis. The scheduling of these um, of the immune checkpoint, uh, there's a, a variety of different schedules that can be used, um, you know, for even within each of those, uh, like pembrolizumab can be used every three weeks or every six weeks, depending on um, a how stable a patient is. Um, but even uh, so that might change some of the dosing, but the dosing, particularly of ipilimumab and nivolumab, does change between um, across the diseases for which it's being prescribed. So that's just an important, you know, little aside um, for the for the listeners. Yeah. So um, one thing I'd also like to get into is say you have a patient who has been on chemotherapy and immunotherapy and their disease is progressing, their cancer is worsening. Do you typically add another immunotherapy in the second line setting or switch to another immunotherapy agent after they're progressing on a checkpoint inhibitor? What has been your experience there? Well, to be honest, at an academic center, our experience is that we make every effort to enroll patients on clinical trials um, because there's not a lot of data in terms of sequential uh, use. Um, some of it's just preference, but um, really to help look at these, uh, you know, how we sequence uh, treatment regimens, um, we do need, we need the clinical data from trials. So we make every effort to do that. Um, and short of that, if we don't have a clinical trial available, um, in most cases, um, we would probably just switch to a cytotoxic uh, regimen for those patients that progressed. Yeah, I agree. Um, I think also being at an academic center, when patients progress on chemo and immunotherapy, mostly we're looking, if we're going to go to the second line with immunotherapy, it's always going to be a study adding another um, agent that may or may not be an, a different immune checkpoint um, inhibitor. But I don't think that there's really any utility to you know, having a patient on frontline chemo immunotherapy and then switching just to, to a different immunotherapy because the mechanism of action, you know, at that point has been used. So they're not likely to respond, but it is unfortunate because now you're going back to just usually single agent chemotherapy or VEGF inhibitor therapy that, that often doesn't work well for these patients. So it, it can be really uh, difficult. So going back to these pdl one negative patients, um, I just want to be clear, I'm still using immunotherapy, even though they're pdl one negative, we're just using it in combination with chemotherapy. Um, so this goes back to the idea that the pdl one is just not a perfect biomarker, which we kind of said in the, our first podcast, um, and really can be, you know, misleading when they're negative to say, oh, they're not going to respond. I would still give that patient immunotherapy outside of any contraindications. So, um, you know, Marianne, any kind of thoughts um, as we wrap up here as to what you think um, you would do with any of personal case studies, you had mentioned, you know, patients coming in, if you had a patient who had a negative expression, but didn't want chemotherapy, what would you do in that case? So one thing I just want to mention is that, you know, when we're testing tissue uh, for pdl one expression, that's one point of a patient's disease, and it's not representative necessarily of the heterogeneity of uh, metastatic disease. And so that's one thing that, you know, while that tissue may be negative, um, the patient may actually have expression in other regions. So keeping that in mind um, really is the underlying 
um, reason that, you know, we certainly see patients responding to immune checkpoint inhibition. Um, so I, I fully support, you know, using the either combination uh, or even single agent immune checkpoint inhibition in patients uh, that either can't receive cytotoxic therapy or are um, really opposed to it for, for whatever reason. Um, and we can see responses in these patients. So, um, you know, I, we're certainly willing, willing to do that. Great. Well, I'm going to end on a really happy note. So um, I just recently attended um, a targeted therapies conference that was virtual naturally during COVID. And the keynote address was by Dr. Karen Kelly. And she gave a wonderful presentation about curing metastatic patient, metastatic lung cancer patients. And, you know, um, she said there are cases where patients have had complete responses that have been durable for greater than five years with immunotherapy. And so I just want to end on that note. Um, you know, her, her statement was, this is the future. There have been patients that are likely cured of their cancer. That's not the most common thing, but we've seen this in melanoma. And now we're starting to see some of these cases in lung cancer. So this is really exciting time um, to be using immunotherapy. And we want to talk about some of those cases because they do happen. They're not the most common thing, but this is not something really that we saw with chemotherapy. Um, so I'm really excited to say that this is something that's possible um, that has happened and hopefully more so in the future. Um, so thank you for joining. Our next podcast will be about toxicities. Thank you for joining us today. Remember to receive your credit and evaluate this program. Please visit morningcommutepodcast.com forward slash NSCLC5. Look for all of our podcasts on your favorite podcast streaming services.